Joseph was a footnote in someone else's story, a data point on someone else's resume. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're introduced to him pretty quickly. After presenting us with a genealogy, a laundry list of names going back several generations, a who's who of Old Testament figures of patriarchs and kings, we're told of a man named Joseph. Now, you won't find the story arc of Joseph and Mary in any Hallmark Christmas movie. In fact, their betrothal is less like a Christmas movie and more like an episode of Shark Tank. It was less lovey-dovey and more of a business transaction. And while this might sound a bit distasteful to us, this was just the way the world operated then. In ancient Jewish society, traditionally parents of a young man would choose a young woman to be engaged to their son and usually... It had business interests in mind. There was a mutual benefit to unite these two families and marriages. And so somehow this would come about that a young man, a young woman, probably between the ages of 12 and 13, more than likely Mary is just a teenager. And Joseph is maybe just a little bit older than her, but probably not by much. But the two of them probably have not interacted very much with only and only seeing each other in passing, if that. Not long after this betrothal by the parents takes place, there's an official arrangement that's made. The young man and woman, they enter into this formal prenuptial agreement in front of a handful of witnesses. And, and usually at this meeting, there's an exchange of, of gifts between the young man and to the woman's family, whether it's a bride price or maybe the, the bride's father will give the couple a dowry. All of this was symbolic to show that this was a legally binding contract or covenant made between a young man and young woman, and it could only be broken by a formal declaration of divorce. Everyone thought of Joseph and Mary as married, even though they technically weren't. They still lived in separate houses, Mary with her parents. Joseph was on his own, probably preparing the house that they eventually lived with, but in a way, they were already married, calling each other husband and wife, but this was a long period. It was unthinkable that couples would live together until they were done with this betrothal period because at the end of a year, there would be a ceremony with all the usual trappings you would think of at a wedding. And this is when the two would unite and to become officially married. The happy couple would consummate the marriage, move in together, and begin starting a family and live happily ever after. If it helps to think of the betrothal period kind of like newly engaged couples going to the courthouse and getting their marriage license or their certificate. And while they had this piece of paper that says they're intending to one day tie the knight, the knot, no one actually looks at them as married until they get to the altar and a preacher like myself says, you may kiss the bride. It ain't technically official until you put a ring on that finger, if you know what I'm saying. And so the way Matthew is talking, it seems to indicate that Joseph and Mary are somewhere in between going to the courthouse and you may kiss the bride. And they're in this limbo stage of the betrothal where they're married, but not yet. And we can speculate as to what Joseph may be preoccupied doing in the season of anticipating his formal union with Mary. We're told later that Joseph is a carpenter. And the town of Nazareth, where he and Mary were from, was not, was not very big, so that carpentry wouldn't have been all that he probably did. He probably had a garden out back, maybe had some animals. When you live in an agrarian culture in the first century in Palestine, you got to do what you can to survive. But when the townspeople needed some carpentry done that was beyond their own skills and tools, Joseph was the guy that came to their mind. 
See, a carpenter likely possessed all the skills, but also the specialized and usually expensive tools that not everybody had, whether it's saws or axes or drills, and you name it. And so while carpenters today would, could make a decent living, unfortunately, Joseph would, was by no means wealthy. And so in between jobs of someone needing some kitchen cabinets, not to mention building the house he and Mary would likely live in as men back then were expected to build the, their own houses, Matthew barges into his neat and tidy little story and says this, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, Mary became pregnant. And this is is where things get a little messy for Joseph. It's hard to know how or what under what circumstances Joseph found out about Mary's pregnancy. The way Matthew's talking seems to indicate that Mary wasn't attempting to conceal her pregnancy. Rather, it simply became gradually apparent to everyone, but only a select few, that she was pregnant, including her unofficial husband, Joseph. And all Joseph knows at this point is that he is not the father of that child, which meant either Mary had been seduced or she has been violated That was the only feasible explanation. Something nefarious happened because of or to Mary. And while notably Mary doesn't appear to be talking, or if she is, no one's listening to her, Joseph doesn't appear to be jumping into conclusions either. In fact, Joseph doesn't say a word. Have you ever noticed that Joseph doesn't say anything? Unlike the other figures in the nativity scene, he has no lines of dialogue. In fact, the wise men have more to say than Joseph does. Joseph never says anything, but instead remains stubbornly silent. And at this critical point in the drama of the story, we'd expect Joseph to maybe say something, to speak his mind. But Joseph doesn't even offer a peep. Instead, Matthew reveals to us Joseph's character. Joseph was a righteous or just man. A person of integrity and honor. He was faithful observer of the Jewish law, the Torah. In other words, we'd say that Joseph was a nice guy who reads his Bible and probably goes to church. All of these characteristics we in this room probably value. But Joseph is about to set himself apart from others who are reading the same Bible he is. When a personal crisis erupts around him, he doesn't react how we'd expect people in his day to react. In fact, in responding conscientiously to this news of his betrothed suddenly, seemingly becoming unexpectedly pregnant, he plans to dissolve and nullify this marriage quietly. There's a few things wrapped up in this answer for Joseph. First, it's not out of anger or resentment that Joseph resolves to terminate his relationship with Mary. Rather, it's out of a deep religious conviction. No matter how Joseph feels about Mary, it is his obligation to the Torah that prompts him to annul his marriage because Mary is apparently guilty of sin. She's become polluted. And so to marry, Mary is to unite and taint himself with the iniquity that's in her. And so Joseph is now forced to distance himself from her, otherwise risk compromising his standing before a holy God. But the second thing is Joseph could have insisted on a public trial to determine whether or not Mary had prostituted herself or was seduced or was violated 
In fact, this is what the scribes and Pharisees do in this story in John chapter 8. Have you read this story? When they catch this woman committing adultery, they skip a few steps. But what happens is they, in the, in, they come before Jesus and they throw her before him and they want him to make a judgment or a sentencing, but they already have stones clutched in their hands, so they've already reached a verdict in their mind, but they're waiting for Jesus to just give them an okay for the execution. But in this famous story in John chapter 8, Jesus tells them the one who has never sinned throw the first stone joseph could have done the same thing that like those religious leaders he could have had a lust for retribution and vengeance he could have exposed mary to everyone in nazareth unearthed the dirty details of her elusive pregnancy and made everyone aware of mary's seemingly promiscuous nature reaping her unimaginable shame this was the majority opinion and position this was the popular response. This would have saved Joseph a lot of money because he didn't, wouldn't have to pay for any divorce settlements. It would have saved him any sort of embarrassment by association with Mary. In fact, it would have given him a clear conscience because that's what the Bible told him to do. But instead, and this is where it gets interesting, Joseph chooses not to throw a stone. In fact, the thought never crossed his mind to even pick one up. He chooses not to expose her publicly, but instead resolve his marriage covenant before anyone else really knows. We see in this personal crisis Joseph's true colors. And this is what makes Joseph one of the few righteous people in Scripture. And he didn't have to do any of this. Joseph was within his legal rights as a man to throw the book at Mary, but Joseph blends submission to the law with compassion for his other neighbors. And though he could not take Mary as his wife, for to do so, according to the law, would tolerate evil in his midst, he thought of the next best thing, and that was to divorce her quietly. And all of this reveals that as a righteous person, he was most concerned about mercy about ev above everything else. The prophets in the Old Testament were continually reprimanding Israel for being sticklers of the law, for being Bible thumpers, while at the same time disregarding the intentions of the law and turning a blind eye to blatant acts of injustice. They cared more about the letter of the law than the heart of the law. In fact, prophet Hosea, who's speaking for God, will say, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. In fact, Jesus will come along and say and reprimand these would-be religious people saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He had to spell it all out for them. But when he's also judged and reprimanded for dining with sinners and healing on the Sabbath, Jesus will point back to that Bible verse in Hosea and said, you haven't quite figured that one out yet. All this to say in Joseph's actions, not his words, but in his deeds, Joseph would have made his soon-to-be son, born son proud. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so with his hands tied as he considered these things, Matthew says, torn between wanting to do the right thing by Mary, but also wanting to make God proud. Joseph is tossing and turning in his bed one evening, dozing in and out of sleep, racked with doubts about his decision. And then out of nowhere, an angel speaks to him in a dream. The first of three times, the angel says, Joseph, son of David, 
Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is the piece of information we've known all along that Joseph and everyone else doesn't, especially if you've never read Luke's gospel, which they obviously have not. Mary's pregnancy was not a normal pregnancy. In fact, it's far from normal. God is doing a remarkable, unprecedented thing through her, a thing that will mesmerize and puzzle theologians for centuries to come. God has implanted in Mary a person whom Joseph is instructed to name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Likely, Joseph doesn't realize in the moment the implications of what the angel is telling him But this dream removes any suspicion of impropriety for Joseph. Only a special revelation from the man upstairs himself could Joseph know that Mary could be pregnant, but also be comfortable marrying her without breaking God's law. Joseph's righteous intentions ordained by the law are vetoed by no less an authority than an angel of the Lord who appears in a dream and without hesitation question, Joseph does what he's told. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. He officially makes Mary his wife, though the two have yet to consummate that marriage in the bedroom. And bear in mind, it is not his prerogative to forgive her and act out forgiveness by consummating this marriage. A lesser man would have only probably prosecuted her and moved on to somebody else. But Joseph is a righteous man, and no such thought crosses his mind. And more importantly, Joseph then named him Jesus. This isn't a throwaway line. This ain't like filling out your child's birth certificate. Joseph's naming of the baby constituted legal recognition of the child as his own. Call it adoption. Call whatever you want. Jesus was now authentically his son and rightful heir. The boy was now his boy, even though his origins were not from his loins. And for outsiders to all of this, whether it be their friends or their family or their co-workers or whoever, anyone not privy to what the angel has said or inclined to believe their testimony, they either look at Joseph and Mary with suspicion or shock or judgment. But the righteous person, however, is not one who simply conforms to conventional expectations. But the one who is obedient to God's word, no matter how scandalous it might appear to others. We fast forward a couple of years when one day Mary and Joseph are peacefully at home when a group of strange men show up at their doorstep. Because I don't want to get fired, let's say there's three of them. They're men with different complexions who speak a different language, dressed in elaborate oriental clothing. They say they've traveled a great distance on a pilgrimage to pay homage to the baby boy Joseph legally adopted, and they've come bearing presents. Finally, the sermon sounds like a Christmas sermon. But unlike, say, your children who want, I guess, an Oculus and a dog, they have different gifts to give to, the bre- to give to Jesus. Gifts not ordinarily given to peasants, but given at the birth of royalty. And as quickly as they arrive, they simply leave. And while Luke will say that Mary often treasured all of these moments in her heart, I have to wonder what Joseph's response to all of this was. Because again, he's not talking. Surely these guys left an impression, or maybe Joseph is just used to the strangeness at this point surrounding his son. 
But not long after they've left, an angel of the Lord speaks to Joseph again for a second time in a dream. He tells Joseph that a murderer is seeking to kill his son. And so get up, wake up his mother, pack your bags and flee. Seek refuge in Egypt until I tell you otherwise. Joseph is not given much more information to go on than that. But just like the last time, without grumbling or complaining, Joseph does what the angel says. He packs up his entire life and leaves town, leaving behind his life savings, his small business, his house that he built with his own bare hands, all of it for the sake of the toddler in his wife's arms. And like a perfect disciple, Joseph obeys the command from God to retreat to Egypt without asking how long he'll have to stay there or what will happen to him there. Then after a few years, after establishing a new normal in Egypt, Joseph is visited one last time by an angel telling him he can go home. And the man of few words once again does what the angel commanded. He packs that U-Haul with the help of a likely young baby Jesus at this point. And the family returns to the promised land, the land of Israel, after their own sort of exodus. Has anyone ever told you that this entire story, this this entire story that I'm wagering you've heard every year around this time is just a glorified, elaborate footnote? That everything Matthew has told us is to explain to his readers just one critical detail about Jesus. That at the end of the day, Jesus can be accurately called the King of the Jews. Can I speak candidly with you? To put it quite callously, the only reason Joseph is in this story in the first place is because Jesus needs to be from the royal line of succession. God promised David a long time ago that his bloodline would produce an heir that will sit on his throne and never leave. And Matthew believed, and rightly I might add, that Jesus fulfilled that promise. But the kicker is, without Joseph, Jesus ain't technically an heir. Joseph is from the line of King David, not Mary, and Jesus is not Joseph's biological son since he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph did not beget Jesus like his father Jacob begot him, and so Matthew has got some explaining to do. How could Jesus, who had no physical human father, be a son of David? It's kind of a pickle. And likely some of Matthew and his readers' critics were trying to discredit the testimony of the gospel on the merits that Jesus wasn't a legitimate heir to David. And so Matthew goes out of his way to say that Jesus became Joseph's legal son when Joseph gave him his name and Joseph named him Jesus. There's that line I told you to watch for. Many Christians are uncomfortable hearing the expression Jesus, son of Joseph, because it sounds like they're denying the virgin birth. But for Matthew, it was essential that Jesus was truly recognized as the son of Joseph, because only then could he be an authentic descendant of David. Jesus gets grafted into Joseph's famous family tree, that list of names you've already skipped over, the one with all the patriarchs and kings, all because of his willingness to be an adoptive earthly father, this man of few words named Joseph. And so as I see it, to put it bluntly, all Joseph in his story really was was a footnote in someone else's story a piece of important ancillary information. 
a way of validating what we'll read at the end of the book. There's a sign hanging over Joseph's son's cross that says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And I find it fascinating that Matthew kickstarts his Jesus story with this footnote. A footnote we're really familiar with. A footnote about a supporting character, a glorified extra, a background figure, a kind of minor character that gets mentioned when the credits roll, but no one seriously considers him a central or significant part of the story of Jesus, let alone Christmas. I mean, if we're honest, it kind of feels like almost every year Joseph's kind of an awkward third wheel when it comes to Christmas. We have the shepherds, we have Mary, we have the wise men, but Joseph just kind of got to be there. Because at least Mary reappears later in Jesus' life. She comes all the way to the end. She makes it to Good Friday. Joseph, on the other hand, is stuck at Christmas. He has his momentary time in the spotlight, then he just disappears, just as he first appeared, without a sound or a trace. So maybe it's best we just don't waste our time with this bona fide footnote. Or maybe, just maybe, maybe Matthew wants us to see something. Maybe there's something to being a footnote in Jesus' story. That our actions, more than our words, they leave an impact and are remembered because they are a part of a larger story taking place in the world, a story that's not about us, but a story that is about God, maybe we aren't supposed to discount our calling and our purpose in God's story if our calling isn't more than a footnote in the grand scheme of things. Matthew, he ends this gospel on a cliffhanger, quite literally, actually. The disciples are gathered on a mountain in Galilee, and Jesus commissions them, saying, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And in his final instructions, Jesus tells his followers a handful of footnotes that are gathered on that mountain to produce new disciples by sharing the good news of the gospel. And he doesn't give them a script to read or something to hand out. He just assumed that they in themselves, as ill-equipped as and they felt, that they were sufficient as witnesses and ambassadors of his story. He assumed that they'd embody his message with their behavior and actions, their decisions and choices, and their attitude and characters. And with their entire lives, their attitudes and decisions, all of it, they would be walking, talking testimonies of the Gospels. And now, friends, we've inherited this calling, this great commission to share the good news of Jesus with the world, but also demonstrate it with our lives. Jesus has invited us to participate in his story of redeeming the world, and he's given us his spirit inside us to transform us, to be conduits and love and grace. But friends, our contributions to the story of the gospel might not be more than a footnote. Maybe the calling to be a Christian is to be a footnote in the narrative of Jesus. Sure, we could point to some in history that have been more than that, but the vast majority of us will only appear in a, for a brief amount of time like a blip on the radar. And what if the story of Joseph, if it's anything to go by, shows that God is fully capable of taking what we perceive to be a footnote in his plans, 
and transforming it into something far greater than we could ever ask or imagine. Maybe we're supposed to be footnotes in Jesus' story, friends. And maybe we should take some pointers from Joseph this morning, this often overlooked and forgotten man of Christmas. And while his part to play helped fulfill ancient prophecy was far from the only purpose God had for him, for, the Lord, for in the Lord's infinite wisdom and perfect timing, God the Father orchestrated that God the Holy Spirit would conceive God the Son in Mary, who is betrothed to the perfect partner, a son of David, who unlike many of his ancestors was actually a man after God's own heart. Have you ever considered that where you are in history, who you're associating with on a daily basis, who you're related to, where you go to school, or work, all the circumstances in your life are by divine design to put you in position to be or do what God has called you to do. And before you throw in that towel and before you forfeit your place in history, before you resign, I invite you to patiently consider that God has you where you are, doing what you're doing for a reason that is beyond yourself. Joseph could have only known the fullest extent of his actions in retrospect or in hindsight. He couldn't have known in the moment, and neither can we sometimes. Maybe God has us in the right place where we need to be, or maybe God is saying, I want you to go to this place where I want you to be now. Your contribution to the story of God matters, friends, and don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. Joseph didn't do anything extraordinary to warrant this calling. He wasn't a super Christian. He wasn't super spiritual or religious. He wasn't a pastor or a priest. He was simply a righteous and just guy, a person who wanted to take the Bible seriously more than literally, a person after God's own heart, a person dedicated to loving God but also loving his neighbor. And when God beckoned him to do something despite the unknowns and uncertainties, by golly, he did it. And perhaps it's just as straightforward as that, friends. We don't need to get a seminary degree or get some sort of title to be used by God. Nor do we need to try to become perfect people before we feel useful to God. Nor do we need to attempt to decipher and discern God's calling on our life. We just simply need to view and respond to the situations in our life as Jesus would and be willing to participate with where God is moving in this world. What if that's the DNA of a truly righteous person? What if that's the secret sauce? No matter the circumstances, they don't just try to do the right thing, but we try to do the holy thing. What if the calling to be righteous, to be like Jesus, is to follow in the footsteps of his earthly adoptive father, to show simple acts of mercy when the situation presents itself, to not flinch when God beckons us to do or go somewhere, as mysterious and as awkward and as intimidating as that might sound. Because, friends, a lot of what Joseph's calling was didn't make a whole lot of sense in the moment. Marry this pregnant woman and risk your religious standing before God. Leave your career and your family and your hometown and become migrants seeking asylum in a foreign country. Raise God's son as your own. When our part in God's story is a footnote, it's hard to see how our contributions factor into God's overall plan. It's hard sometimes to see Christ in that. But when I look at Joseph, I cannot help but notice that he's not looking at himself, but he's looking at that baby boy, his son, 
the one that he named Jesus. And friends, the mystery doesn't seem as bothersome anymore. And the hostile stares don't matter as much anymore. And the chatter and the gossip behind his back doesn't irritate him as much anymore. The uncertainty about the future doesn't taunt him like it used to. No, each of those feelings seem to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Maybe Matthew is setting us up for success. And he's been doing so right under our noses for years. When we read this Christmas story, a story we're very familiar with, we find an example of true discipleship made flesh and Jesus' adopted daddy. A template for us to mirror and mimic. That Joseph stands at the beginning of Matthew's gospel as a model of what Matthew hopes all disciples, indeed all readers of the gospel will be. And so, friends, I wish I could desperately ask Joseph, was it worth it? Was it worth the headaches and the snide remarks and the dirty looks and the bloodied feet, the sleepless nights, the bruised egos, the tough conversations, the uncertain future? Was that baby boy who wasn't even yours worth it? What say you, Joseph? What do you have to say for yourself? Speak. Break your silence, Joseph. I want to know, was it worth it? And I think if Joseph could speak, I think I hear him saying, I'd do it all over again. It was worth it to be a footnote in the story of Jesus. Won't you join me?